the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks, in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For when the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. I've entitled this message, Desperate Times and Desperate Measures. She had always wanted to be married. Seven years into this marriage, it was crumbling. It was chaotic. It was sad. It was sorrowful. Her husband wasn't the husband that she thought he was. She'd always wanted to be married, but now that she was in this marriage, she didn't want to be in this marriage anymore. And there came around another guy who she saw throughout the week. As she paid attention to this other man, day after day, after day, after day, it led her to conclude, God would want me to be happy. And so she committed adultery and ended the marriage and went after this other man. He believes his will is for him to be a doctor. He believes that God's will is for him to be a doctor, and so he, in his undergraduate study, is coming to the time where he sends applications into medical schools because, after all, he believes that God's will is for him to be a doctor. But his grades are kind of suffering, and so, in order to get into medical school and follow the will of God, he cheats on some final exams so that he could then get into medical school because after all, it is God's will that he gets into medical school. What do these things have in common? Fear brings about temptation to do what's wrong for the purpose of self-preservation or self-fulfillment. And so both of these people, fear 
They're tempted. They give in and do something contrary to the, God, the Word of God. This is what happens in this passage. Saul's meant to lead the people of Israel. There is a situation that brings much fear on Saul and his countrymen. And so he goes against the Word of God in order to preserve himself and the nation. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Desperate times actually lead to sinful measures in Saul's life. This passage shows us fear in people, fear in a leader, and the response of fear being a wrong response, to go against the will of God, to go against the Word of God. Here in this passage, to go against what the prophet of God has spoken on behalf of God. And so this passage will show us a case study in wrongly responding to desperate times. A case study in wrongly responding to desperate times. Let's look first, first verses, verses 1 through 7. Let's look at the presence of desperate times. The presence of desperate times in verses 1 through 7. Saul lived for a year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. So right away, this is showing us kind of the situation as Saul amasses his military force. And there's already some confusion in verse 1. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. You can dig out your commentaries and go through it if you'd like. As Alistair Begg says, it's not a plain thing or a main thing. And so I'll briefly give you my thought on verse 1. Verse 1, some of your Bibles might say Saul, Saul was one year old. Clearly we know that Saul wasn't one year old here. So what is the passage saying? I believe this is showing us that Saul had one year as king, as he was anointed privately by Samuel, and then a year happened and he was publicly shown to be king in Israel. And then two years in, this situation happens before us. Again, if you want to dig more into that, have at it. Go into your commentaries and look to see what that's saying. But we have a situation before us, and Saul's amassing a military presence, and his son Jonathan is, is over part of that army, a third of it. And so we see this kind of amassing a military force in light of their enemy, the Philistines, who were just beyond their borders and really kind of all around them. And so the passage is showing us kind of how Saul is, is getting these people together, putting them in certain groups uh, the, verse the passage continues in verse 2, the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. That's a way of saying they were done with military service. Verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land. Now right there, uh, you're going to see here in this first paragraph, Saul get credit for a military victory that really his son earned, and that's meant to get the reader to scratch their head and to say, that's curious. Saul gets the credit for something that his son earned. As we go throughout the next couple chapters, you're going to see Saul's failure in leadership and really his son as a faithful leader. It's as if there's going to be a faithful leader that comes after Saul because Saul is not a faithful leader, not, not a leader after God's own heart. But Jonathan's not going to be the leader that God then chooses after Saul. It's going to be someone else. Some of you know who that is. We'll save the secret for later. But Jonathan is shown to be the great leader, but Saul gets the credit for it. After all, he is the king. He is officially the leader over the armies. And so Saul blows this trumpet as Jonathan has uh, earned this battle victory. Saul blows this trumpet so that all the Hebrews understand and hear that this is to be known throughout the land of Israel. All Israel heard it and said that Saul has defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. So the Philistines lose a battle, but their attention is grabbed. They're provoked, if you will. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Verse 5, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. So the Philistines have just lost a battle. It stinks to them. And so they muster this force. And the text says, again, some of your text might say 3,000 chariots. In the ESV, it says 30,000 chariots. There's a question about translation there. Either way, lots of chariots, okay? That's what you want to come away with. 
lot of chariots, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Now, those of you that know the Scriptures, know the Old Testament Scriptures, when you hear sand on the seashore speaking about a number of people, what do you think about? This, that's a rhetorical question. Okay, keep the answer to yourself. All right. You think, about, you think about Genesis 12, right? You think about God's calling of Abraham. I'm going to give you uh, sons and daughters that number the sands on the seashore. The people of God are supposed to be the ones with a great population, and they're supposed to be the ones with this great force. But here, the Philistines are provoked, and God's enemies are so strong, it's as if they're like the sand on the seashore. Continuing in verse 5, they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people stood there and said, we are here in the name of the Lord, we have nothing to fear. If you're reading along with me, you know that's not what they said. The people hid themselves. God's people, those whom God defends, hid themselves in caves and in holes. I mean, imagine digging holes to hide in. Hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs where dead bodies were, and in cisterns. They're desperate to hide. Some of you remember when Saddam Hussein was captured, he was literally hiding in a hole. A decade earlier, he had palaces, wealth, power. Now he's to the point of hiding in a hole. These people are hiding in holes and in tombs. They're afraid. And that's just some of them. Verse 7, And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, Some just fled. They didn't hide. They ran. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. That's why I entitled these first verses, The Presence of Desperate Times. They're afraid. They're afraid for their lives. They're afraid for their families' lives. At this point, they're not trusting in God. They're afraid. Now, the saying, there's a saying that says, like, like king, like people, or like leader, like people. When Saul was called to be king, where do we find him hiding? Right? In the baggage carousel at Sky Harbor Airport, right? Saul was hiding among the baggage. He was afraid and hiding. Well, this is what we get. People following along. He's cowardly at some point. Now, they are afraid, not trusting in the power of God, but this is the presence of desperate times. So let me ask you right now, what are you afraid of? Right now, today, what are you afraid of? And if you're a man in here, you're not allowed to say nothing. I don't believe that. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of where your finances currently are or where they might be in a year? Are you afraid of a physical lack of health and what that might mean for you and your family? Are you afraid of something happening relationally in your life? Are you afraid of where you're at spiritually? It's good to know what tempts you to fear. It is good to know where your heart can be tempted to be fearful because fear can lead to more and more sin. So it's good to know What is it that I'm afraid of, and what's the right response to that? What's the biblical response? What's the response God would have me to have? So I would encourage you, know what your fears are. Know where you're tempted to maybe disobey the Lord in order to alleviate some of those fears. That's what's happening here in this passage. And we know what the fear is. These people are scared of this Philistine force. So by implication, I would encourage you to know what it is that you're tempted to fear. But the Scriptures also give you reason not to fear. If you're a child of God, if you're one of the people of God, the Scriptures give you reason not to fear. And what I love about our Lord is He doesn't doesn't look at threats to fear and say, oh, that's nothing. He acknowledges there are real things that could cause fear, but then He commands, but don't be afraid. So, so I can see on the surface why you would be fearful of this, but don't be afraid. I'll give you some examples of that. John 14, in the upper room, when Jesus is giving his disciples their marching orders for the future, what, what they can expect, what he wants them to do, it, it's not the most encouraging speech. There are some things that are encouraging. He's going to give them the Holy Spirit. There are other things that are, 
that are kind of concerning. They're going to hate you like they hated me. One of you is going to betray me. So there were highs and lows in that upper room discourse. And so Jesus says twice in John chapter 14, he says this in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. There are things for them to fear. Again, one of them will betray him. The world's going to hate them. But he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Later on in chapter 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Same exact words. And then he adds this, neither let them be afraid. In 1 Peter 3, the Holy Spirit gives this exhortation to, uh, specifically to women, believing women with an unbelieving husband. Listen to these words. Do not fear anything that is frightening. You see what God is doing there? He's acknowledging there is something that on the surface is frightening. Don't fear that which is frightening. So the character of God is to identify there are some fearful things out there, but when you are connected to, cared for by Him, you don't need to fear what is frightening. You have Him. So again, this passage is a case study in wrongly responding to desperate times. There is something these people are afraid of. There is the presence of desperate times. What does that lead to in this passage? Second point, the wrong measures for desperate times. The wrong measures for desperate times. Let me read verses 8 through 15 again. He waited seven days, Saul did, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Now, now this takes you back to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. Listen to what Samuel said to Saul. Do you remember this? Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, listen, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So there is this command by Samuel. Now, again, when you hear Samuel in 1 Samuel, I want you to hear and think prophet of God, messenger of the Word of God. So God telling Saul through Samuel, listen, you wait seven days then I, Samuel, will come, offer a burnt offering sacrifice, and then you can go to war and start defeating these enemies. Back in our passage, verse 9, people are scattering, so Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. He, Saul, offered the burnt offering. He's not waiting for Samuel. Offers the burnt offering. Verse 10, as soon as, he had, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Surprise, surprise. God gives Saul an opportunity to demonstrate faith and trust and obedience. Where is Sam? It's been seven days. He's not here yet. We need God's favor here before, as the Philistines are all around us. Give me the meat. I'm going to offer it. As soon as he offers it, Samuel walks up. Behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Samuel knows. What have you done? And Saul said, sounding a lot like Adam in the garden, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of my Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. You see what Saul does? Saul's afraid. He's tempted to take matters into his own hands instead of trusting in his God. And so he does that. He takes matters into his own hands. He offers the offering. And when he's confronted, he blames other people and puts himself in the position of doing what's right, even though he did what was wrong. Samuel blames the scattering people. I'm sorry, Saul blames the scattering people. Saul blames Samuel. Saul blames the Philistine presence. And he justifies himself. He says that he forced himself and offered the burnt offering. There's a part of this where he spiritualizes what he did. I had to offer the burnt offering. There was a threat, and so I had to do this. He's trying to justify what he did as right. But is what he did right? 
It's wrong. He literally went against what the Word of God had told him to do. And there's no excuse for it, even though he makes it. Verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue. So there's consequences. When you fail as a leader, when you stop listening to God's word, your kingdom doesn't thrive forever. There are consequences for failing to continue listening to God as a leader. And so what's going to happen? The Lord's going to rip apart the kingdom from Saul and give it to someone else. Verse 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Saul's heart clearly is not one with the Lord. There's going to be another man who trusts in the Lord in times of difficulty, trusts in the Lord when the armies surround him and seem to outnumber them. There's going to be a man that trusts in the Lord and his heart is going to be united to God's heart. We know that that's David. I I ruined the surprise, okay? It's David. David's the man after God's own heart. He trusts the Lord. And one of the first things you see when David comes on the scene is a a Philistine threat, a giant and the force of the Philistines. And and while everyone's scared, David's not because he knows the Lord, Yahweh, is on their side. And so you see in the story of David and Goliath, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, you see the the difference between Saul's response and David's response. So God's going to see to it that there's someone with a heart after his own that is going to be the new prince over the people. Because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. That word command is used a few different times here in these verses. The Lord commanded you, the Lord commanded you, the Lord commanded you, and you didn't obey. You didn't do it. Verse 15, and Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Samuel leaves. This is interesting. Saul rejects the command of God, and so the word of God, as it comes through his prophet, the word of God leaves. Saul's left. I think there are some lessons for us, the 21st century people of God, some lessons for us in this paragraph. I'm going to give you three from this, from these verses, 8 through 15. Here's one lesson. God often puts us in situations where we must deal with our fears by trusting Him alone. God often puts us in situations where we must deal with our fears by trusting in Him alone. God is too good to let us have a small, fearful pocket left in our heart. He is going to go after that fear. If you are trusting in your spouse, in your money, in your health, in your religious observances, whatever you're trusting in to keep you from from bad things, He will find a way to go after those things and prove those things aren't saviors. He is. God often puts us in situations where we must deal with our fears by trusting in Him alone. This was was the opportunity for Saul. Trust in the power of Yahweh. But he didn't. He didn't. What's the response? Will you trust, have faith in the Word of God? Or will you trust in your own course of action? which you think can eliminate your fear. Those are the two options. Trust in the Word of God, which is backed by His own character, or trust in your own course of action. Dale Ralph Davis says it wonderfully. He says cynically, there are certain emergencies that render God's Word unnecessary. That's what happens here with Saul, right? There's a certain emergency. This is an emergency, and it renders God's Word unnecessary. I I can't do what God said here. I've got to do something else. So because something is fearful and it's an emergency situation, I just can't obey what God says. I've got to do this other thing. That's what's happening. So that's the first lesson to draw from this paragraph. Secondly, 
Another lesson to draw from verses 8 through 15. Nobody is exempt from responding rightly to God's Word. Nobody is exempt from responding rightly to God's Word. The king is not exempt from responding rightly to God's Word because he is the king. And let me say this with with all the pastoral care I can. Some of you are going through really dark and difficult times, and this is not me making light of that and saying, oh, it's simple, it's easy. This is not me doing that. This is me understanding, yes, you are going through difficult times, and this is me pleading with you as a brother and as a pastor to trust in the Lord and what He says. He is good. He is all-wise. He is all-knowing. So this is not making me making light of your situation, okay? But nobody, no king is exempt from responding rightly to God's Word, and no person who is currently suffering is therefore exempt from responding rightly to the Word of God. As a matter of fact, God's Word, when heeded, gives life. And I'll show you more about that in a moment. But nobody, no king, no sufferer is exempt from responding rightly to God's Word. We are all to respond rightly to His Word. Saul, maybe because he's king, he thinks, I can offer the sacrifice. I'll do it on behalf of the people. He's wrong. That's a, that, there's pride there. An illustration of this in human history that's rather interesting. <clears throat> James IV was a king in Scotland. James IV would often go and hear Robert Bruce preach. And James IV, uh, rules didn't apply to the king. So sometimes in church, James IV would be up in the upper uh, section of seating and he'd be talking during church. Talk, 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 and everyone would hear. He, he didn't care. And so there was one day where he was talking kind of like normal and Robert Bruce was preaching and he paused. And so James paused and was quiet. He went on preaching and James went on talking. And so Robert paused and James paused. Did this three times. And the last time, Robert Bruce said this. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. Rather bold. Robert Bruce sounding a lot like Samuel, and James IV seeming a lot like Saul. Maybe thinking that he's king, he doesn't have to do what Samuel said. He's going he's gonna to offer this sacrifice, this spiritual act to gain God's favor for the people. After all, it's a spiritual thing he's doing here. But no, there's an element of pride here in this distrust. Nobody, no king, no sufferer is exempt from responding rightly to God's word. And here's a third lesson from this paragraph. God invites and demands everyone to trust in Him for salvation. The response to the threat of the Philistines is to trust in the power of Yahweh, who has demonstrated over and over again, see the Red Sea, see His defeat of Nahash the Ammonite. He's demonstrated over and over again that He would rescue His people if they would trust Him. And this isn't just something for 1 Samuel. Actually, the rest of the Scriptures call on people to trust in God, and it doesn't call on just Israel to trust in God. The rest of the Scriptures call everybody who's created to trust in God for salvation. The New Testament makes it very clear that we need saving, not from the Philistines. We need saving from ourselves. We need saving because of our own sin. And the New Testament makes it very clear that God has made a way of salvation And the way to obtain that salvation is to trust, believe, depend on, have faith in Him. So what's the threat to Saul, the Philistines? What's the threat to you and I? Our own sin keeping us from our greatest enemy. As a matter of fact, our own sin bringing us our greatest enemy, death. 
And God is a God who saves His people. He saves Israel, offers to save them, shows that He's trustworthy, and He sends His own Son to rescue people. And what do people need to do in response to that? Trust. Just like Saul needed to trust, people today need to trust in the saving power of God. God is a Savior by nature. God desires to save people. Let me read this for you. Jesus comes to earth and He goes, actually a a religious teacher, a teacher of Israel comes to Him by night and Jesus says, you have to be born again. You have to be started over. You were born in sin. You have to be made new, spiritually speaking. And Jesus comes and teaches that and He makes it clear that God has offered salvation through Himself, Jesus. Listen to John 3.16. I know you've heard this, but hear it for the first time, if you will. For God loved the world in this way that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him, trusts Him, has faith in Him, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world yet. He sent His Son to save the world. He didn't send His Son in the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes, there's that word again, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's one way to be right with God. It's through God's Son, His one and only Son. And so the word for the day is believe God. Believe what He's done. He's a Savior by nature, and He's put forward His own Son as a Savior for you. So Saul shows us what it's like to not trust in this good God. And Jesus shows us that this God is good and you can trust this God. Believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. He died for sin. He rose again, proving that you can trust Him. Trusting Him leads to life forever. Later on in John 3, I closed my Bible too early. This is too good. Later on in John 3, listen to this. Summarizes it. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, see the word believe switched out for obey, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's the whole section summarized. Believe in the Son of God. Believe that God is a God who loves to save people. Believe in the person that he gave to be the means of that salvation. Believe in Jesus and the work that he did. Please, please, please believe. Please believe and obey the God who saves. Back to 1 Samuel 13, Saul shows us a picture of unbelief. Saul shows us the wrong measures for desperate times. Let's see third and finally the rest of the story. Point number three, let's notice the continuation of desperate times. This chapter doesn't end with a striking high note. The continuation of desperate times. Second part of verse 15. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Doesn't sound like even as many chariots as the Philistines had. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed at Geba of Benjamin. And the Philistines encamped in Michmash, And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. So the Philistines send people to attack in three different companies. They're hitting the Israelites from different angles, different places. These raiders come out of the Philistines in three different companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. That if you were an Israelite here, you'd say they're hitting us from all around. They come this way and they take our goods and they kill our people. They come this way and take our land. They come that way and take our land. That's what's happening here. Saul has distrusted Yahweh, taken matters into his own hands, and that doesn't lead to his people thriving. 
Distrusting the Lord, disobeying the Lord does not ever lead to thriving. Verse 19, they couldn't even muster up the right weapons. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. So the Philistines wouldn't give them the right weaponry. They wouldn't even give them the right farm equipment because they could turn that into weaponry. The Philistines controlled the market there. They controlled the resources and they would not let the Israelites have what they needed, even for farming, because they could turn that into weapons. This is the continuation of desperate times. Verse 20, but every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their, his plowshare, his mattock, and his axe, or his sickle. And even then, when they went down to do it, the Philistines would charge them exorbitant prices. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of, for the, of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for the setting of goads. So on the day of the battle, and here's the summary, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. They're fighting with, with they're, they're under-weaponized. <laughs> Not only do they have fewer people than the Philistines, they don't even have the weapons the Philistines had. I mean, if they had a weapon, even though they're small in number, if they had an atomic bomb, we're the ones with all the power. No, no, no. They're fewer in number and fewer in weaponry, even the quality of the weaponry. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This is simply the continuation of desperate times. When you fail to trust in Yahweh, things don't get better. But the Bible doesn't end with 1 Samuel 13, does it? And the story of God doesn't end with his faithless people, his faithless leader, and just desperate times. That's not where this book ends. That's not where the whole Bible ends. For the people of God, even when they have sin, there is hope. So, let me draw out for you two signs of hope. One comes from 1 Samuel, and another comes from the New Testament. This, this chapter ends in a dismal fashion. Saul doesn't trust the Lord, and the people and Saul are not thriving because of it. So where do we go for hope in light of this? Well, one place in 1 Samuel, and I alluded to it earlier, 1 Samuel 17, if you'll turn over there. 1 Samuel 17, verse 43. I told you there's another leader, there's another prince coming after the, who's after the heart of God. His heart lines up with the heart of God. What does this prince do when he sees this overwhelming military force that's against his people or against his future people that he'll lead? What does David do when the Philistines have too many people and one of them in particular is a giant who is strong and powerful? David uses inferior weaponry, doesn't he? And you'll notice this as we go through 1 Samuel. Oftentimes, the people of God have inferior weaponry, but they have God, and David knows that. David's trust is in Yahweh, not the circumstances around him. Listen to what David says in 1 Samuel 17, 43. Uh, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Notice the confident faith there. And it's not in David's weaponry. David is not confident in the fact that he can really sling a sling. Yes, it's a verb and a noun. He can really sling a sling. He, his confidence is not in that. His confidence is in the God who is for him and his people. Verse 46, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know 
that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. There's the opposite of Saul. There's the opposite of fearful distrust. And listen, it's so important to see this. The circumstances were the same for Saul and the same for David. Lots of Philistines. They're powerful. Saul tempted toward fear, and then that leads to disobedience. The Philistines, still strong, still powerful. David, tempted toward fear? Maybe. Does he give in to it? No, because he trusts in the one who's greater than the threat. He trusts in his God. Victorious Christian living isn't based on the circumstances as you see them. Victorious Christian living is based on the resources that God gives to His people who trust Him. Victorious Christian living is not based on the dismal circumstances around. Victorious Christian living is based on trusting the God who freely gives His resources, generously gives His resources. You have all you need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. You receive spiritual riches from Him, Ephesians 1.3. God gives His resources to His children. God can be trusted. So there is hope. There's hope in the book of 1 Samuel. It's not the circumstances that are important. It's the power of God for you. It's the power of God on your behalf. There's the hope. Trust Him. Obey Him. Trust and obey Him. But there's more hope in the Scriptures. And for this, we go to later revelation. Turn over to the book of Hebrews for this one final point. Hebrews 12. And as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of context. Book of Hebrews, Jews drawn to Jesus but not coming all the way to Him because when they align themselves with Jesus, bad things happen. Persecution happens. I don't know if I'm going to continue. My Judaism didn't get me this persecution. Aligning with Christians does. And so the book of Hebrews is written as a plea, come to faith, all the way to faith. Embrace the persecution, embrace it all because you get Jesus. And Jesus is better than the old covenant. The new covenant in Christ is better than the old. Come all the way to faith in Jesus. And so chapter 11, that great that passage of faith, the hall of faith, he cites all these people that trusted in God even when their circumstances were bleak. And many of them trusted in God and suffered and died because of it. But he goes through that list, by faith this person, by faith this person. So it's a way of saying, reader, listen, trust in God even in dismal circumstances. Obey God even in dismal circumstances. And then chapter 12, I've given you the hall of faith in chapter 11, but now listen to the most faithful one. We talk about another king that was coming other than Saul. We certainly see David and say, David is much better. But David was still a fallen man. And then a greater David came, came, an eternal David, Jesus Christ. Listen to the explanation of Jesus Christ going through suffering and how it's meant to encourage us who go through suffering and are tempted to disobey, to distrust God. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance, that's hard to do, run with endurance the race that's set before us. How do we do that and continue trusting? How do we do that? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We look to Jesus because, one reason, He initiated our faith. He gave us this faith. He gave us this entrance into His family, and He's going to perfect us. He's going to, to go at all the, the spots that are, that are wrong in us, the, the flesh that still clings to us. He's going to fix that, and it's going to be long and enduring, and it's not easy. But look to Jesus because He's perfecting us. But don't, don't stop looking at Jesus. Look also to His example. 
Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured. Same word. You endure because he endured. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He went through the suffering, and now he's the high and exalted one. That's, the, that's your future. You go through the suffering, and then he brings you to sit with him. That's what this writer of Hebrews is, is strongly exhorting the Christian to see. Go through your suffering. Keep trusting in Jesus. He's perfecting you, and He's gone before you. Keep following in His footsteps. But it's so hard. I'm so weary and weak. I feel disciplined by the Lord. This is not easy. You're right. Verse 3, consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin… <coughs> You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So, so you haven't gone through what Jesus has gone through. You can keep going. And don't, all, don't forget, God's your Father. He loves you. You can keep going. He loves you. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for training, for growth that you have to endure these things. God is treating you not as enemies. It might feel that way. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. <coughs> you know one reason you want discipline from the Lord? It shows that you're his son. He cares for you that much. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. Now, stop right there. See what that's saying? Look to Jesus. Follow in His path. Follow in His footsteps. He, right now, is highly exalted. Follow through His cross and to His crown. Receive His crown. Fo keep following Him. He's perfecting our faith. And don't forget where God comes into this. You've considered God the Son for a time. Now consider God the Father. He's disciplining you because He loves you. He's weeding out all of this fear and distrust and sin that's still present. He's weeding that out for the purpose of making you more like Christ. And that's for your good. And you say, well, I just want... I just want to be in a place where I have peace again. That's what God wants. Look down at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friend, if you're in a difficult situation like Saul, like the people in that the book of the writer of Hebrews is writing to. If you're in a difficult situation today, consider the love of God the Father, consider the love and the pattern of God the Son, and consider that trusting in the Lord and obeying, even though it's difficult, leads to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Our God is a good God, and He wants to train you, to help you, to grow you, and He desires to give you peace. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Please trust and obey. I told you a couple weeks ago that I've been reading a book about William Cowper and John Newton, and their, it's their friendship. So the sermon conclusions lately come from that book. Sorry, that's just where I'm at. <laughs> But this, this poem written by John Newton uh, really warmed my soul this week, and it fits perfectly with 1 Samuel 13 
I mean, just listen to the title. I will trust and not be afraid. And it's Newton just kind of spilling his heart out before the Lord. He, he can be tempted to fear, but he's determined that he's going to trust. And so I hope that these stanzas, these three that I'm going to read, encourage you. And again, if you are here and you are suffering, this is not me scolding you or being angry with you. Our Lord Himself identified with sinners and had compassion on sinners. My desire for you is just to point you to the character of God, saying you can trust Him. Trust Him, obey Him. Newton writes, Though dark be my way, since He is my guide, tis mine to obey, tis His to provide. Though cisterns be broken and creatures all fail, the word He has spoken shall surely prevail. How bitter that cup, no heart can conceive, which He drank quite up, that sinners might live. His way was much rougher and darker than mine. Did Jesus thus suffer? And shall I repine, turn back? Since all that I meet shall work for my good, the bitter is sweet and the medicine is food. Though painful at present, will cease before long, and then, oh, how pleasant, the conqueror's song. Let's pray together. Father, on behalf of all of us, I'm asking you for a greater trust in you, a greater dependence on you. I'm asking you for a greater trust in your word. Help us to believe that when your word gives commands, they are for our good and they come from a good and loving heart. Help us to believe in a fresh way, Father, about your perfect fatherly care for us. Help us to believe when Hebrews 12 says that you love us, that that's actually true. Give us the faith we need to be obedient to you in times of difficulty and trials. Father, if we're honest, fear does bring a temptation to go around your ways. Remind us that there's no life there. Forgive us when we've done this. Father, draw out more love and trust from our hearts because we've seen a negative example in Saul. We've seen a positive example in David and in Christ Jesus. So, Father, please, please, please answer this prayer. We pray this in the name of Christ, who has the power. Amen. Well, now the ushers will pass the bags and we'll receive our weekly giving as we sing one final song together.